So first, uh, first thing, before we get started, uh, I need to walk back, actually, a bit of what I said last week. Uh, I referred last week to the New Zealand shooter as a Christian terrorist. I had a friend challenge me on that, and uh, there is some nuance that's not really summed up in that moniker. I should be clear, he was not acting in the name of Jesus when he shot people, and I apologize if I implied that to anybody. In his manifesto, he said that uh, you know, whether or not he was Christian depended on how you defined Christian. And what he likely meant, based on the other uh, things that he wrote, was that uh, it depended on whether Christian was a cultural thing, whether it was a cultural, uh, environmental, ethnic Christianity. Uh, it's this idea that we're somehow Christian, whether we follow the teachings of Jesus or not, whether we believe that Jesus is our Savior and our Lord or not, because of our heritage, because our parents were Christian, or our grandparents were Christian, or because our culture was formed by those who had Christian values. What I was trying to say was that he was a person who, right up until he rolled up to the first mosque, would we would have placed on the us part of any us versus them that was going on. If we look around our communities, we see a lot of people that are like that. Uh, people who, if they were pressed to do so, would check a box that said Christian. Say, if I have to check a box of some sort of belief system, sure, I'm Christian. But they don't meet regularly with other Christians to worship and grow in their faith. The idea of being a follower of Jesus doesn't mean anything to them. There's no evidence in their day-to-day -day lives that they have a transforming relationship with a real God who loves them. Honestly, most people don't put much thought into this in our, in our culture. It's, it's like people who get these only God can judge me tattoos without really thinking about the fact that God will someday judge them. I don't know how much, if at all, I get to decide who is and who is not a Christian. But if we are ready to say that he was definitely not a Christian, we need to take a look at our own friends and, and our family and our community, maybe even ourselves, and ask what defines a Christian. And maybe then ask where that definition gets to come from. What I can say is that there is a lot of people whose lives don't look like what Jesus described during the Sermon on the Mount. Whose lives don't look like Jesus' life, and, and they aren't getting any closer. And these people would be shocked and offended if someone told them they weren't a Christian. You know, that's probably, that's probably a good segue. For almost three months now, we've been sitting at Jesus' feet as he preached what we call the Sermon on the Mount. It's found in the Bible in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. We've gotten through the first 16 verses of chapter 5, so we're really on a roll. Uh, what I believe Jesus is doing thus far is correcting a whole bunch of people whose faith had become something that was cultural, something that was part of their ethnic identity, rather than something that was transforming their hearts. The, the, the idea that they had was that uh, to be the people of God had more to do with their heritage, something that they owned than how they fit into his plan. And that was reflected in how they were living their lives for their own advantage, their, their own status, their own power, and how their faith was aimed 
inwards. It was aimed as a tool for their own personal gain, and Jesus started flipping that upside down. He called them back to the idea that they weren't winning when they were doing better, you know, materially speaking, than the next guy. They were winning when Team God was advancing. They were winning when the kingdom of heaven was coming to earth through them, and he said they were doing a lousy job. He referred to them as salt and light. Now, uh, they might have been kind of surprised to, to hear themselves referred to as salt and light because in ancient Israel, the Old Testament writings, the law and the prophets, were referred to by fancy people as the salt and light. See, they believed that the law was supposed to be salt and light to them, to flavor them, preserve them, purify them, bind them together while lighting their way. And what Jesus was trying to tell them is that that was never the intent of the law and the prophets. The law was supposed to be salt and light through them, to flavor, preserve, purify, and bind together the world while lighting the world's way to him. So when Jesus said to them, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, there's a contrast that they would have been questioning. They'd be like, wait a second, Jesus. The law is the salt, the prophets are the light. What exactly are you saying? And that brings us to today. As Jesus rolls into what a lot of people consider to be a very confusing passage of Scripture, one that feels as if it, uh, if it contradicts a lot of what's said elsewhere. See, Jesus had a habit of saying what people were thinking. He knew what was going on in their heads and what was going on in their hearts. You know, I don't know, maybe it wouldn't have been that hard. Maybe he could have been he probably pretty good at reading a crowd. He could have looked around and, and probably seen on their faces what was going on, that, that thought, like, saying that he's just throwing the law out the window? There's a tension that we have in, in the Christian faith between the law and grace. How we're supposed to live, how we live, and how we stand before God, it's, it's a tension that has always existed. And I'm not sure it's not supposed to be there. In fact, when you read through the letters of the New Testament, there's a lot of those letters that spend a lot of time dealing with that tension. And depending on which way the people that the letters were written to were leaning, Scripture can seem to be pulling in opposite directions. On the one side, you have legalism. This idea that, that keeping all the rules is what keeps you right with God. And on the other side, you've got something called universalism. The idea that it doesn't matter what you do because everything has been handled by Jesus. Every Christian, whether they've thought through it or not, will fall somewhere along that line. And two people who both love Jesus can wind up putting the dot on very different places on that line. They said it's maybe confusing, and if it was confusing then, it has not gotten any clearer over time. So Jesus has been speaking to them, and uh, starting at, uh, at verse 17 of Matthew chapter 5, he says this. 
says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish these things, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all of this takes place. So anyone who breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever obeys them and teaches others to do so will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses, goes beyond that of the experts of the law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. A lot of Christians are profoundly uncomfortable with this scripture. We like the Beatitudes. And, 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 you know, you skip ahead. We like, do not judge and you will not be judged. But how do you feel about, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets? How do you feel about, unless your righteousness goes beyond that of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven? Who here plays darts? Anybody? Uh, have you ever seen dart players on TV, some sort of televised professional thing? Okay. I like to play darts. It helps me to think, it helps me to focus. I actually have a dartboard up in my office. If anyone wants to swing by my office uh, during office hours, have a game and a chat, uh, I would love that. But I have to warn you, I am phenomenally adequate at darts. Check this out. See that? Here, let me zoom in for you. Yeah, that's pretty impressive, right? That only took me about half an hour to get that picture. <laughs> Seriously, most of the time, uh, most of the time it looks more like this. It's fine. That's still pretty good, right? I, I, I'm, not, I'm not hitting the bullseye, but I'm solidly on the board. Some of the darts are near the middle, and most of the time I feel pretty good about that. Any professional, any competitive darts player would completely wipe the floor with me. They would rack up the score with triple 20s, that's that kind of inside middle ring there. Uh, and uh, they, then they throw a double, that's the, either the outside ring or the very center of the bullseye, and that's what they'd have to do to end the game. And uh, it would take them about four turns to do the whole game, 501 points. Exactly. You know, you know what I'm talking about? It makes kind of general sense now, good enough. I'm gonna come back to this picture a few times, actually over the next uh, few weeks in a, in a few different ways as we work through this. But imagine if to get right with God, you had to be really good at darts. And this is the scenario we're working with here. Your righteousness equals your darts ability. Like darts is for some reason what God really cares about. That is our purpose on earth. That's what he put us for, to play darts, to play darts really well. Now, how would he draw the line between good enough and not good enough at darts to be right with him? Anybody want to take a shot on that? Yeah, Carol. As long as you hit the bullseye, you're good. As long as the, the bullseye, as long as you're on the board, yeah, as, long as, you're, off on the wall. as long as you're not off on the wall. Like, just in, in general, okay, that's good, but, uh, you know, so everybody that's on the board, everybody that's on the board is good, everybody that misses the board, how many times do we miss the board before we're not good anymore? 
Maybe we can do it once or twice. And some people might say, well, you know, we, we're going to do it by score. There's going to be a certain threshold, a certain level that if you can score above that much in a game, or uh, maybe over a course of games, or maybe your average score must be this much in however much turns. Or maybe we do it by comparison, right? We, we just uh, have a little tournament. Uh, you know, maybe I'm not great, I'm not a professional, but I'm better than that guy. Right? So if I can get better than maybe like 50% of the people, then I'm, I'm good enough. Or, or 80% of the people, or 98%. We're going to draw a line somewhere, right? What percentage would you have to be? Both of those things are a form of legalism. Legalism is performance-based religion. Legalism is performance-based religion. Legalism keeps score because it thinks there is a line that needs to be passed. There is a threshold that we need to get above in order to be good enough, in order to be okay. Most, if not all, of the people that were listening to Jesus that day would have understood the law in that way. And honestly, where they thought the threshold was probably depended on how good a law player they were. The Pharisees, the experts in the law, they were like professional law players. Everybody was impressed with their ability to play law. I think that for a lot of people there, though, the hope was just that they maybe just had to be better than that drunk guy at the end of the bar that couldn't hit the board half the time. Imagine their discomfort when Jesus says, unless you play the law better than these professional law players, you don't meet the standard. There is no good enough. The standard is to never miss the bullseye. Never. I mean, you, you watch professional dart players on TV for a few minutes, you'll see it. Which is good, because watching darts is insanely boring. And a few minutes is really all that most people can handle. But uh, I, I, I said about four turns earlier, because in theory, you can finish a game of darts in three turns. You can score 501 points in exactly nine throws of the dart. Uh, it's pretty rare. Most of the time you watch them throw, and, and the announcer will be like, 60 points. 60 points. Oh, 20 points. Because they hit the triple, that little red thing, halfway down the 20 bar twice, but... One's just come just a little bit underneath it, and now it's only worth 20 points instead of 60 points. Fun fact. In the history of televised darts, there have only been 52 nine-dart games on TV. It's like, God bless Wikipedia, right? This isn't information that I have, you know, at my fingertips, at my disposal. I want you to know that. But uh, 11 of these 52 games were by one player. That's almost twice as many of the next uh, best guy. And that one player never managed to do it in a world championship. The best dart player in the world is not going to make it if the standard is to hit the bullseye every single throw, every single game, every single time he picks up a dart. It's not going to happen. Something's going to slip. It's going to come off to the side. He's going to get distracted. It's going to miss by maybe just that much. But he's not going to do it. That's crazy. 
Like that, that's, a, that's a not standard, that's an insane standard, right? Like I, I think most people would agree with me that that's, that doesn't seem right. Like Jesus is saying though, if playing law is what is gonna get you into the kingdom of heaven, you are not good enough. The best of you are not good enough. So the other option seems to be the score just doesn't matter, right? That, if the score doesn't matter, what does it matter if you play at all? Uh, you could throw it straight at the roof. You could throw it behind you. You could, you'd sit and watch other people play and, and never pick up a dart. And it wouldn't matter because the score doesn't matter. Let's just throw things willy-nilly and then celebrate that it doesn't matter how we throw things. Isn't that exciting? At this point, I would like to be clear, in case I haven't been already, that the darts represent our actions, the way that we live our lives every day. And God gave the law and the prophets to his people to aim at. Why? Why? If they were never supposed to be able to justify themselves by their score, if they would never score enough to be righteous, why even give them the target? That's a question that the early church struggled with. They really struggled with it. In, the, in his letter to the Galatians, Paul tries to explain it. Uh, we're going to go there together. I, I'm going to work with you, uh, work through a bit of what he's talking about. It's a bit messy, but so is life. Uh, so is faith. That's okay. We're going to go to the third chapter of Galatians, uh, verses 15 to 19. This is way back near the, uh, the back of your Bible here. It's in the New Testament. Uh, it's after Acts in Romans and, and Corinthians. But before Ephesians and Philippians, so we're almost there. Here we go. Galatians chapter 3. Uh, most scholars agree that this is uh, the first or second letter that Paul wrote. It's a very early letter. The date is somewhere around 50 AD. It's written to churches that are trying to figure out how to deal with the Gentiles. That's uh, non-Jewish people, people that are not ethnically part of the people of God. They're becoming Christians because at this point Christianity is still basically Jewish people living out their faith in the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. They're asking if God's law was for God's people, Israel, do these new people joining us have to follow the law? And they're they're arguing about it, they're disagreeing about it. And this is what people said what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, 15 to 19 says to them, dear brothers and sisters, here's an example from everyday life. So he's, he's trying to give them an analogy. He's explaining. Just as no one can set aside or amend an irrevocable, irrevocable agreement, so it is in this case. There's been a contract made. You can't change it legally. Okay? God gave the promises to Abraham and his child, or Abraham and his seed, or Abraham and his offspring. And notice that the scripture doesn't say to his children, as if it meant many descendants. Rather, it says to his child. And that, of course, means Christ. So what promise are we talking about here? We're talking about uh, God took Abraham aside way early on and made a covenant. It was called the Abrahamic covenant. And Abraham is going to be special to God. And his descendants are going to be special. He's going to be given the promised land. And uh, Paul is kind of extending this somewhat beyond maybe what was uh, there in Genesis, but he's saying God made a promise to Abraham that was for him and the future. And it was a binding promise. There was a whole ceremony, like a contract ceremony. It was almost a wedding ceremony that was going on between God and Abraham. It's in Genesis. I don't have the reference right now, but if anybody is doubting me, I can give it to them later. This is what happened. 
So scripture doesn't say into seeds, meaning many people, but to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. Paul is aware that they're confused at this point, so he says, this is what I'm trying to say. The agreement God made with Abraham could not be canceled 430 years later when God gave his law to Moses. Does that make sense? There's a contract. It's an agreement. It's been bindingly made. This is what God has promised to have happen. Now, 400 and some odd years later, Moses is meeting with God on the top of the mountain and gets the Ten Commandments. All of a sudden, now the promise depends on the Ten Commandments? All of a sudden, the promise now depends on this law that God gave Moses? He's saying, that doesn't make sense. God would be breaking his promise. For if the inheritance could be received by keeping the law, then it would not be the result of accepting God's promise. But God graciously gave it to Abraham as a promise. Right? 430 years, his promise is still his promise. His promise doesn't go away because all of a sudden there's law. Wait, what? He says, why then was the law given? Because that's what people are going to be asking. Why was the law given then? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. But the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child that was promised. God gave his law through the angels to Moses, who, gave it, who was a mediator between God and his people. Now, a mediator is helpful if more than one party has to reach an agreement. But God, who is one, did not use a mediator when he gave his promise to Abraham. There was no deal that had to be made here. The deal had already been done. The deal was done by God. So what's going on here? Why is the law even necessary? Let me ask you something. Can anybody right now point to my van? You guys know what it looks like? So you, it's somewhere there. Are you confident that you're pointing directly to my van? You're not pointing over top of it or slightly to the right or the left? Maybe, maybe not. You're like, gee, they saw where the van was. They, like right now, I can point. I know it's on the other side of that wall. I know because I parked it there. You know, I'm assuming it's still there. There is a chance. I haven't seen it since we walked through. It's a very nice van. It's not a very nice van. Nobody's going to steal it. But somebody theoretically could have climbed in there and took off to Charlottetown, right? But I'm assuming that it's over there. Can't see it. But if I want to point at it, I'm guessing. Keep that in mind for a second as I, as I continue to read. Find where I'm Is it a conflict then between God's law and God's promise? Absolutely not. If the law could give us new life, we could be made right with God by obeying it. But the scripture declares that we are all prisoners of sin, so we receive God's promised freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. Right? I'm going to pause for a second. Just, there's a verse in, in Romans that uh, Paul, Paul's writing to another group about the law, and uh, he says this, it's the purpose of the law. The law was brought in so that trespass may increase. The law was given so that there could be more sin. And that's a weird, weird statement. But uh, what we're saying is that the law was given in part so that there was a target that people would know that they were not hitting. 
somewhere on the other side of the wall was the God that we couldn't see. Somewhere on the other side of the wall was the promise we were supposed to be walking towards, and who knows? Now, imagine that knowing exactly where my vehicle was, I, I went and I set things up, and I painted a circle on the wall for each person that if you pointed at that circle, you would be pointing directly at my van. That is what he's talking about when he said, we gave that target. We gave the loss so that sin may increase. So you know that if you're not pointing at the target, you're not pointing at my van. If you're not doing the law, you're not pointing towards God. That's what he's saying. It, it, it's why the, there was atonement built right into it. They were never intended to be able to keep that law, to hit that target perfectly every time. God knew that. He said, this is going to show you that you're missing me. And when you do that, we're going to make a way for you to get back on target. We're going to make a way for that to, to bend back around to where it's supposed to be. that target, when we make grace cheap and, and easy and say it doesn't matter how we live, we go right back to that pre-law state that over those 400 years, people started pointing all over the place because they sit, couldn't see God. They didn't know how they were supposed to live to move towards God. That's why they needed a target. It says, before coming to this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come could be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now this faith has come, we're no longer in need of a guardian. So essentially what he's saying is that Christ came and he knocked down the wall. We don't need the law as a target anymore because we can look to Christ. We can look to Jesus. Jesus is our standard. Jesus is the perfect image of God. You don't have to be shown where to aim because now you can see the real objective. And he finishes by saying, so in Christ, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free nor is there male or female, you're all one, you're all equal, you're all at the same level of righteousness, you're all at the same standard, you're all equally loved by God in Jesus Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The law is not going to be what gets you in. The promise, because you are joined with Christ, is what gets you past there. Everyone who's been baptized into the Christian faith, whose sins have been washed away, who have had their old self die and be born again in the family of God, are all people of the same promise, and that promise came before the law. So let's circle back to Jesus. The one Paul called the seed of Abraham, the heir to the promise, as he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish these things, but to fulfill them. Jesus is saying he is not abolishing the instructions that God gave in the New Testament. He's not getting rid of them with what he's teaching. He's fulfilling them. He is completing them. The implication he's getting is that the law and the prophets, and this was not something they wanted to hear, the law and the prophets were incomplete. They were inadequate. They were not finished. They were halfway things. 
And it's actually built into the words that he chose. The word that he uh, used for abolish, kataluau, uh, uh, it means the end of a journey, the finishing of, of uh, your progress, the finishing of, of your purpose, the end of a journey. It's the same root word, kataluma, uh, uh, that the guest room. There was no room for Mary and Joseph in the kataluma. Same root. In their legalism, they had made the law a stopping point. It was the destination rather than the guidepost. They were pointing to the target, not pointing to what the target was supposed to direct them to. It was like this. Uh, Jesus was saying, I didn't come to bring an end to our journey. I came to bring our journey the rest of the way to the end. Draw it like this. The law was not an end in and of itself. It was supposed to be something that was a guide for their moral trajectory. It had a function. The law came to assist the promise. God's people were supposed to shoot through the law. The Pharisees had people shooting at the law. The reason that Jesus could take away the target is now the true end point could be seen. So here's the thing, though. That didn't change where the target was. Where our lives, where our actions, where our darts were supposed to be landing never changed. Instead of now, now instead of the law being our guide, it's Jesus. Because Jesus kept the law perfectly. Hebrews 12.2 calls Jesus the author. That means uh, the beginner, the originator, the designer. Uh, and it calls him the perfecter, which means the completer, the, the finisher of our faith. Jesus Christ doesn't stand opposed to the law because Jesus is the same God that wrote the law to start with to show us the way home. There's a lot more that I want to expand on there. I, I think you're going to save it for, for another week. What I want to leave you with is this. Think about your rules. Think about uh, the rules you hold yourself to, the, the rules that you live by. Think about why you follow them, why you follow them, or, or you don't follow them. Where are those rules pointing you? If people were to look at the trajectory, the aim of your actions, would their eyes end up on Jesus? Ponder this. The target is not there to get you to God. The target is to show the world where God is by how you are throwing yourself. The target is so that people from over there can follow the line from you to God. So throw well. But here's the tension, and it's a beautiful tension. You can take a breath and know that you get to choose whose score gets counted at the end. Yours or Jesus's. And for your sake, for my sake, for our sake, he never missed a bullseye. The law, the rules, the the way we live our lives, are our mission for the kingdom of God. They're, They're an arrow, they're a dart pointing from the world to Jesus. 
That target is not there to decide whether or not we get past the wall because Jesus has already broken the wall down. So just remember that, take that deep breath. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, he has taken care of it. He has hit the target perfectly. Now it's our job to follow along where he's already gone. Cool? We're good? 